Hey, Digital Wildcatters, welcome to another episode of BDE. So we've had the great trade, right? Where we traded Colin for Sean Meyer, called it the uh, Jeff Bagwell trade. We've made another trade today. Mark, who's this trade? You know, this trade is probably, this might be the Astros um, sneaking Jordan Alvarez out of the Dodgers. Oh, I like that. I can't even remember what they gave up for him. I love that. So we got rid of Colin McClellan today, Christian Klingen. Uh, (laughs) Did I mispronounce that? Pure power hitter, right? Do what? Pure power hitter, hits for average and hits a lot of home runs. A lot of speed on the base path. We're going to spend some time on a fairly complicated topic at the end of the show. And in a feat of technology rivaling putting a man in the moon, we have our man in Nantucket, Kirk Coburn, on the phone. That's right. Guys, I don't know why you sent me up here for the summer uh, to work on a whaling vessel because my hands are not that dirty. But I'm going to try it. So I appreciate you guys patching me in and I'll uh, broadcast live once I uh, hit the ocean. Aren't you doing uh, surveillance for uh, seismic vessels and wind turbines? (laughs) You know, in Nantucket, um, the proposed wind farm between in, in Nantucket Sound between us and the Cape was vehemently voted down by its residents because not in my backyard, damn it. Beautiful. So, you know what so the more I extreme you know what the more extreme version of NIMBY is, right? No. <laughs> Banana. What does that mean? <laughs> Build absolutely nothing, nowhere near anything or anyone. Oh. <laughs> Something like that. Everything you ever wanted to know about acronyms here on BDE. All right, let's jump in. Mark, what happened with OPEC this weekend? Well, everybody was watching Twitter yesterday. The press was shut out of, um, well, a large portion of the press was shut out of uh, normal access to OPEC during their deliberations. And basically, there were some adjustments to uh, some West African quotas downward that then get those quotas more in line with um, what their actual productive capacity is. The biggest part of the story was the Saudis unilaterally agreeing to what has been termed as the lollipop cut of an additional million barrels a day for July with the option to extend that million barrels a day longer. Um, bit of a pop uh, when crude started trading last night, but it's essentially been, at least as the market has received it, a big nothing burger. I think the way that I think about this, and we were talking about this earlier, is we're still in a, a market that is very much in show me with with all of the cross currents out there from banking to debt deals to whether or not we're going to be in a deep recession and we're going to have to be shown in terms of inventories uh, that clearly that demand is, is okay. Now, having said all that, I did see something right before coming in that OPEC did announce a, an across the board official selling price increase for the month of July to all of its customers. So Christian, this is literally when I think about this, the Saudis, it's the most pathetic display I've seen since I expressed my love for Christy Ludwig in the sixth grade. Embarrassing, horrific, two cuts in 90 days, adding up to less than a dollar. What say you? 
Oh, you're putting me on the spot. I wasn't even aware of it before you pulled me onto the show. This is what happens when you get the uh, the, the timesheet uh, as you go uh, on air. Um, and I guess for everyone that's that's wondering, um, and if anyone saw on YouTube, my perplexed face at the uh, the introduction was because I know nothing about baseball, and so I understand the re the reference at all. Um, so I've got nothing for you on the OPEC cut, to be perfectly honest. Here's my question, Mark, and I've been wondering about this. Like, the Saudis flexed, and they're trying to flex probably at the U.S. and their strategic petroleum reserves, but they're also flexing to those that are trying to short, like all the traders. Um, Tell me more about your thoughts on that and also about the other OPEC members, including OPEC plus, like the Russians. Can they handle a cut at this time? And I just want to let's opine on, on what the futures hold because we're 99.99% right on the show. Well, uh, I'll, I'll leave kind of the speculative trade to, to those that are more expert. But I will say that I think there is a, an SPR subplot here that was part of the message that the Saudis in particular wanted to send, you know, whatever that means with the physical fundamentals in reality uh, is anyone's guess. <clears throat> Clearly it's not, it's not a thing that's manifest in the, in the price reaction today. Um, but again, if, if we start to see a steep drawdown an accelerated draw, drawdown in, in, continuing tight physical markets, then you're probably going to see a lot of short covering. But until we see that physical evidence manifest in inventories, I think people pretty much stand pat, if that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. there, there's not a lot of dramatic action either way because of all of the things that we have been living with in the true macro that, is clearly driving the bus as it relates to both, you know, how the commodity trades today, day-to-day uh, -day, and certainly how the equities are trading. So the thing that gets me about this that I don't understand, oil at $72 or $73, wherever it is right now, okay, whatever, that kind of makes can make sense if you think about it. Four years from now, you can buy a barrel of oil for just over 60 bucks a barrel, which to me means... There's this huge recession coming, demand is going to plummet, or there's this mystical supply out there, and I just don't know where that supply is. So is is the market actually saying we have this huge demand problem, or is the market still living in the shale days of we'll just go drill a 5,000 barrel a day shale well? Yeah, I don't think there's clear consensus that there's a huge demand problem. I, I think that, you know, the kind of the back end of the curve does what it does, but the, the, all the distractions that are out there are what everyone's focused on until we get clarity and resolution on those. Again, we've got to see it good or bad in inventory trends. Yes, we're approaching six year lows on global inventories, but what does that look like in a, in a recession scenario where, the trend can kind of go V in either direction, right? So, so Christian, Chuck Yates, private equity firm. I just went and raised a big old fund. 
I'm giving you $250 million. Are you out drilling wells today? $72 oil going to 61. Um, where have I got acreage? You tell me. It's your yeah. company. Yeah. I gave it um, to you open-ended. So open-ended. Take it wherever um, you want to go on that. No, I like that price point. I think um, no matter where you are, you can you should be liking that price point. Um, if your costs aren't significantly below that, yeah. Um, I, I don't know any companies that um, sort of screening mechanisms wouldn't be uh, severely positive at that price point. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, Christian, Christian's a, a guy that loves the Gulf of Mexico, the deep water. He needs $2 billion, Chuck. He needs a big check. Yeah, I was going to say 250 is not going to do me much uh, offshore Gulf of Mexico, but, you know. We got a ship out there for 250. Yeah. <laughs> we said the ship out. Because <laughs> where we're going, and let's kind of roll into the next story. I mean, the rig count's plummeting. Yeah, I mean, it kind of looked up at last week's report and wasn't really paying that much attention, knowing it was drifting lower. But, you know, down 72 rigs since the end of March, and the split is is interesting. 45 of those 72 horizontal rigs that have been dropped were with private companies and only 27 on the public side, which, you know, maybe there's some lag with the publics as it relates to contract stickiness, multi-well. The privates have probably drilled up quite a bit of their programs in advance, and now things are getting tighter and stickier from a cost and resource standpoint. I think we've, we're seeing ducks creep up as well. So I would answer that question. No, I would not um, be drilling today, just given you know all the uncertainty that's out there. I, I I'm I'm a little worried about the longer dated price and committing capital today, and particularly if I'm a public company. And you asked the the question in private equity sense. I I just think this bodes for more capital restraint and capital dis- discipline, which is ultimately structurally bullish for the macro. Yeah. Now you guys know that I come up with the most random data connections that to many out there will say make no absolute sense and are not correlated, but I'm going to bring another one in. But when you look back in history, they go, man, that guy was actually onto something. I'm out here in Nantucket. Um, we've got a house that we're, we're going to sell. Um, we talked to our real estate agent who owns the number one real estate agency on the island. And he said this week and last week, there's almost zero showings. No one's looking at real estate. Now, the people that come to Nantucket, sure, there are a lot of um, of, of independent billionaire oil and gas families that live here. But most of these people are sort of the private equity hedge funders from Boston and some from New York. Is this a bigger trend is, is what I'm saying? Are people nervous across the board? That's that's Just contemplate that. That's a that's a wild data point because I my my similar type data point in history was 0809 when we were having the financial crash. I was fortunate enough at that point to have a little bit of cash in my pocket. And we always went to Telluride. And so kind of had the discussion with the ex-wife of, hey, maybe now's the time to buy a house. And went down this path of, hey. Can we go out there and find the person that actually has to sell? 
you know, so can we look at a house and just have it be binary? Either we'd buy it or we wouldn't. Let's not rank order. This is the our favorite. Let's try to get it. Let's just go find out who might need to sell. And of course, we went and saw one house and it was like, oh, my God, I love this. I want this house. And so I forget it was a ridiculous amount of money that I did not have. It was like four million dollars. And so I was like, OK, we'll go put a bid in on this, put a bid in at. 2.8 million just to kind of see he countered at 4.5 million. So yeah, <laughs> kind of, kind of, big, kind of big. needless to say, I, I don't have a house in Telluride. I would have lost it in the d- divorce anyway, but that is a really interesting data point. I mean, I can build off um, Kirk's point there. I did see yesterday that super high net worth individuals, like the family funds highest proportion in years, maybe even up to, a decade probably post financial crisis, money in cash and fixed income. So, as a sort of uh, an indicator of you know um, appetite for risk in the market, I think that's another one that sort of points to to what Kurt's referring to. So, I think we need a field trip to the Galleria, the Versace shop. We'll go check that out. <laughs> see if they see because you know back during the pandemic they had lines out. Because uh, everybody was spending their stimulus checks at uh, Versace, but uh, the news. I, we I think we need a field trip to Nantucket. There we go. Private. Well, you've private. already gotten an offer and to record BDE on Island, the oh. original energy capital of the world. And how did how is that because of whales? That's right, whale oil. Now nice. it didn't smell as good as as petroleum. Imagine that. But uh, the spermaceti of the sperm whale is highly toxic and can burn. They made candles. With whale sperm? Is that what you just said? Not sperm. It was called spermaceti. It was in their head, actually. Really? But it's actually quite fascinating. We'll go to the whale museum. It's actually a pretty interesting thing. I mean, these, these whalers, I actually met a guy on the golf course last week. And he's from one of the original families. And like that's a big deal if you're from, from one of the original whaling families, especially if your great, great, great whoever was a captain. Uh, interesting. All right. So we've got our road trip. Let's do one more quick story. Uh, and then we want to jump into what's going on in the Texas house. But Mark, real quick, what did Exxon do on their climate resolutions? Well, basically last week, the resolutions related to two things. Uh, there were others, but the uh, the two that are garnering most of the headlines are um, certainly scope three and then additional methane monitoring. Uh, on scope three, you saw a pretty precipitous drop in support down from 27% support last year to just 11%. And then on methane monitoring, you, you only managed to get uh, 36%. And I think that was down, but I, I don't have the, the baseline from 22 for the methane monitoring. You know, I think it I, th- I think it all dovetails pretty nicely with the way uh, Weil and Darren Woods and Mike Worth and the rest have been talking down these expectations relative to you know, the magnitude and the pace at which the majors are going to spend money and take risk in renewables in transition. I also think it is somewhat emblematic of, you know, where shareholders have been for the past couple of years, at least, 
in really enjoying unprecedented returns of capital. And so staying the course, uh, you know, the, one of the, one of the, uh, uh, activist groups that we've talked about before follow this out of Holland was the leader on the, on the scope three resolution. And Exxon was very, very explicit. Uh, when engine one back in 21, won its spots, it's three spots on Exxon's board that they were not going to get on the slippery slope of scope three. And so I think this is just further bolstering of that somewhat insightful and foresightful position at that time, because there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, grandstanding that, well, Exxon's let three uh, activists on its board. What's next? You know, they've, they've lost the fight. I think, I think this is a, at least an intermediate data point on scope three that uh, indicates that that change is not coming anytime soon. I mean, besides our, our friends on Twitter um, that are hilarious, uh, there was a book I grabbed not too long ago by Simon Sharp called Five Times Faster. And he argues that the global economy needs to decarbonize five times faster than it has been in the past two decades to maintain the internationally agreed warming limit of 1.5 C. He attributes the slow progress in tackling climate change to shortcomings in science, economic shortcomings in science. I'd like to dig into that one. Economics and politics. He also underlines the need for a deeper understanding of climate threats and novel thinking in these areas. So, I mean, maybe Exxon just sort of like, they're always been the long-term thinkers. And if we need to decarbonate five times faster, it's kind of like, wait a minute, we're starting to get into math that doesn't make any sense. And as a company that is shareholder driven, we need to return money back to our shareholders. And if we don't, we're out of a job. I mean, it almost, thinks that Exxon's just calling the, the no duck hard, you know, on the, on the industry. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think Exxon has proven historically to be pretty good at math, but I also, <laughs> I also think it, you know, it, it speaks to portfolio allocation and the focus on doing what its, its primary objective is relative to shareholder primacy. And that is maximizing profitability. And we've had this conversation before. You're way more into uh, venture tech around uh, things like direct air capture and other uh, battery technologies. But the ability to force scale immediately to some type of commercial outcome, if, you know, if those who are on the bleeding edge and VC world can't do it or won't do it, why are the majors on the hook to do it. In other right. words, make, make an immediate pivot from a business model that has been in place for 150 years with a culture and an organization with capability that's trained to extract oil and gas, transport oil and gas, and refine and process oil and gas. It, it's a completely different skill set in a lot of these areas. Now, there are things that you see companies like Exxon and Chevron do, Exxon in particular, which is primarily focus where the big impact can be made in things like CCUS. Well, for almost over a century, they, they and others have been pretty good at putting fluid in the ground. I, and, I, and I think the SEC requirements uh, that are coming out that are going to cause reporting of all this actually, believe it or not, are going to help. I mean, I think when people realize it's the Amazon vans running around 
that are using the petroleum-based products as opposed to necessarily what oil and gas companies are doing. It might help shift the narrative somewhat if we actually tell our stories and uh, and try to talk about it. So yeah, it's what. No, I think that's a great point, Chuck. Um, you know, I was just talking to an executive that runs one of the larger largest cloud companies. And it's interesting. I mean, we, you, we talked about this last week, you know, on Twitter, um, debating about people going after the sort of the, the, the industry that actually delivers energy. Why is no one going after the, the companies that are using the most energy, like the big tech? But what's interesting is um, we're out of like, it's hard to build data centers because there's not enough power in those in the locations um, required to build data centers. So um, there's, there's an interesting dilemma coming up and we should have someone from one of these big cloud companies on the show to talk through, um, this interesting phenomenon because everyone's asking for, for more data, especially with AI and like chat GPT, that's supposed to triple the power consumption of the internet. Um, but there's, we can't build data centers fast enough and there's not enough power in areas to deliver, to make data centers make sense. Anyway, another discussion for another day, but something we should look into. Yeah, exactly. So the main what what's Exxon's scope three is Amazon's scope one or the data center's scope two emissions. So when we start differentiating it that way, um, yeah, and start having a more open conversation about it, I think it, it hopefully will change the narrative. It, Plus, it, at it, the end of the day, on all the old cop shows, the drug dealer was always the coolest guy anyway. So maybe we'll always, go back to being always. the cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you think about, and we've talked about this before too, is uh, how does Exxon or Chevron control whether I decide to get two separate Amazon Prime shipments when I could have been more patient and maybe done it in one, right? That's, that's my complete free choice to make. And Amazon has made that available as a very incentivizing way of conducting business kind of just in time. Right. And so there, there's a lot of individual versus corporation or responsible party along the chain of scope one, two, and three. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see it play out. So Christian lay it out for us. What's going on in the Texas house renewables, all that world. We yeah, hear, we, yeah. we hear you've been all over this. So Maybe a bit of context, right? So you're hearing an Australian about to talk to you about a Texas uh, Texas regulation in the uh, <laughs> electric market. It's like, okay, so it's like kind of why do I care about this maybe to, to start? Um, so, well, first disclaimer, uh, I do work for Shell. I support operations in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not here uh, representing Shell. So my own views just says... So we're clear. I don't. I'm not. I don't work on Shell Energy, for example. Our retail arm here in here in Houston. Um, but like, yeah. So what? Why do I care about this? So let's let's throw some facts out there about Texas in general, just to to start the conversation. So, if Texas was a country, the economy, like GDP, would be about the seventh or eighth largest in the world. So you know, you're talking about a um, a hugely significant market. You know, that's like the size of France, to give some context. Um, if you talk about population, 30 million greater than the population of Australia. Um, then we start talking about it being the energy capital of the world, right? And so 
I come at this and I come at this with the interest, not just as a Texas resident, but also as a Texas has the opportunity to be like a global leader in this space and should be. If you look at oil and gas reserves, you look at, you know, wind capacity, you look at solar, it's like, and the fact that the grid is an island. So I'm sure most people know that, but just to be clear for everyone, the Texas grid is isolated from the East Coast and the West Coast grids in the US. So it's like a great test case for the world. If looking at what is Texas doing? It's got a history of innovation in this place. It's a global leader in this place. Um, we can use that as an example for other, potentially for other other countries um, uh, to look at like, yeah, what, what should a future energy system look like? Um, so that kind of frames up, I think, my, like my interest on it. And delving into the details, obviously, I wasn't here in 2021. I was living in New Orleans. We have um, Uri, uh, obviously horrific event. You know, I won't go into the details. You guys obviously, you know, live through it. Um, so you have the legislature every two years here in Texas. The last one was directly after Uri. Uh, you then had a bunch of laws that were passed uh, because of that, trying to improve the reliability of the grid. I think if you ask most people uh, that have delved into any of the details, they would say they'd say those were insufficient um, to really, yeah, provide the robustness, the reliability that we're after. So uh, we've just on the 29th of of May, so last Monday, we closed the 88th session of the legislature. So that was the next opportunity since Uri to, to um, put some new bills in place, um, and it was hot up until the last minutes, hotly contested. Um, uh, you know, from, a, from my perspective, what I thought was worrying in it was um, it seemed like a lot of stuff was driven by special interests. It, it was you had a lot of um, bills in there that rather than being technology agnostic or technology neutral, it was, you know, distinctly, we're going to put $10 billion into new natural gas-fired plants or we're going to specifically prohibit battery technology from, um, you know, from, from, from uh, this specific um, bill. And I think that's like, that's a worrying place to be, right? This is, this is Texas that, you know, has a, uh, a, a, a history of innovation and light regulation and innovation um, and, and so my view, you know, I was mentioning off air that my team does is, you know, essentially problem solving. So I come at it from the engineering lens of what's the problem we're trying to solve. Let's get the, you know, the bills in place that set those requirements to achieve those goals that'll, um, solve the problem. And then let's let the, the free market determine the best way to do it. Uh, and I guess the worry was there's a lot of stuff in there that, um, mm -hmm uh that went against that i'd say and i'll let you guys comment then i can delve into some specifics on do you, do you think well, i have two i have two questions but one first question that we all need an answer from you christian because of texas and our size and capability should we invade russia Uh, if you're going to get me onto the debate of, uh, uh, of UK and Russia, we could be here for a while. All right. Next question. In spite of substantial lobbying, I was, I was looking, I was intrigued about the proposed performance credit mechanism 
a capacity market proposal that would reward existing gas and coal plants with billions of dollars for their mere just availability. Yeah. Um, so base load, but it was capped at a net cost of $1 billion. Yeah. Yeah. Some say considered a significant win for consumers, but I'm wondering, is it a win? Does that really help us? Okay. So yeah. To, so first to clarify for everyone, uh, Texas currently operates on an energy only market. Uh, essentially it means, uh, you only get paid if you, um, for the energy you put into the system. A capacity market, on the other hand, is you get paid for being available to um, supply. So, like the analogy. Hey, Chuck, that's our future. We just want to be paid for it, our mere it, ability it, to be around. It, exactly. So, they, I, like, I, I've often said my mere presence is yeah. worth billions. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the analogy would be like, a coffee shop that gets paid for having a coffee machine, but not actually for giving you a coffee, right? right. So the reason you do this is to, you need to incentivize the peak load capacity. So when we have those peak demand events a few times a year or through the cycle of the day, you need to be able to incentivize that 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 tiny piece, right? And so you can do it through capacity uh, market, but it's pretty inefficient. The way an energy-only market does it is that it allows the price to sp- to peak. And that incentivizes um, people to to build that capacity. So yeah, it would be a if you went to this you know performance credit mechanism, if you let it go unchecked, from everything I've read, essentially you would be um, it'd be a full philosophy change of the of the market. So um, so playing the playing the hydrocarbon homer here for just a second, I think what the natural gas peaking plants maybe even the old coal fire plants would say, hey, that's great. We'll compete any day with anyone out here. We'll only get paid for our energy. But federal subsidies have allowed renewables, particularly wind, because we do a lot of wind in Texas, to in effect be built for free. So we're competing with the marginal cost of wind, if you will, on any given day and not having, you know, and they're not having to recoup the CapEx. And I know I've grossly oversimplified, but that that's kind of the the bitch back, isn't it? And potentially why we, at least up to, to Yuri, we wound up with a grid that may have had too much wind power. And we we I know that natural gas failed that day, too. But at the end of the day, I was sitting there watching the wind speeds at various spots where we had. Yeah. And there was just no wind in the state. Yeah. Uh, on during Yuri. Yeah. And and the wind diced up. Um, I I, I want to ask, yeah. what's your general sense? It it seemed like there's a lot of, you know, the the session adjourned, I guess, without anything passing. Yeah, it, it seemed like the that the sentiment behind some of these proposed legislative changes was very much taking advantage of the tailwind of the pushback that we're seeing, the rollback. What what happened in Europe? Um, we we have Yuri in in fairly recent memory, and reliability inter- intermittency comes up. How much of that was kind of political um, vibe, if you will, versus yeah reasonable arguments against? Well, so again, I'd go back to um, why are you spe- like why are you specifying a technology? In within the bill, who you know the the legislature is not best place to do that. 
specify like let's define the problem, specify the problem you want to um, you want to solve. So if it's about dispatchable um, capacity, that's a that's a great thing. No one's arguing with that. Yeah, we should we need to we need to value if you're providing value based on being available at a certain time, you need to be uh, incentivized, you know, based on that. But to just call out a specific technology and decide this is the right answer, I think that's the I think the, the problem with it. Well, yeah, and, a huge and- mistake we made with the IRA at the federal level. We went into, and we've talked about that on BDE a yeah. bunch. We went into specific technology saying this is the answer, and I'm not sure it is the answer. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's akin to your point. It's not about emissions. It's about EVs. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and so <clears throat> I think uh, one other element that has been in the news recently is this stack of additional EPA regulations that will force coal-fired and gas-fired generators to site capture or mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions at, you know, at some level, uh, devil's in the details. But that also raises the threshold cost of competition for uh, part of the gener- a big part of the generation stack today that's not, you know, certainly not uh, aided by what what Chuck just alluded to with wind and solar. Yeah. So, so let's bring it back to URI because it, a lot of people do and they use that that as it, right? So yes, uh, I think we dropped about 50% of the wind capacity. Uh, wind capacity at the time was 20-odd uh, percent, so you lost 10% that way. You know, gas is 40 45%, and they lost half of it. So, you know, you lost even more on the on the gas side. And so a lot came out straight after URI with like the winterization of the gas plants and that got done, but it's a different commission that then controls the supply side. And so as far as I'm aware, nothing has been done to winterize the supply of gas to these facilities. So it's great that the facilities are well covered now, but if you can't get the gas there because you got hydrates from the, from just outside the wellhead, it's you haven't solved the problem at all. I forget I forget what it was, uh, which storm it was, but it was December 23rd. And the reason I know is because I was throwing my Christmas Eve Eve party and we had the worst freeze we've ever had. And it was 15 degrees or whatever it was. And we seemed to get through that. We didn't have rolling blackouts and all. And I think Mark made one of the best points. Yeah, we got through it. We had no condensation. There was no moisture. And Mm -hmm. so there was no freezing up, you know, in the pipes and. And all that. So let's do this. We're going to go around the horn. And uh, Kirk, I'm going to put you on the spot first. I'm going to make you energy czar of Texas just on your command, because we all have such regard for you. You're going to be able to pass kind of any proclamation that you want, any policy, any procedure. Tell us what you would do right now to make Texas better, and then I'm gonna hit you, you guys as well. Man, great question. I'm, I don't know the answer to this because I explored it briefly and then sort of lost um, focus. But I, I think there needs to be, ERCOT is closed. I think there needs to be some agreements outside of Texas with 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 the FERC regulated grid. I hate regulation, but. In this case, I think Texas is isolated, which has pros and cons. Um, and I think we saw in URI the cons. Um, 
secondly, I hold do on, Kirk. Like while we're on, I- hey, Kirk. While we're on that point, one thing I want to say. Uh, hopefully, this week's podcast that I release is with Russell Gold, who's a Texas Monthly reporter. And one of the points he makes on the podcast is look at it this way. It's not we're in trouble with Yuri. We need to be connected to the rest of the of FERC. Uh, we need to be connected so we can export electricity. Because at the end there of the day, Texas, we export oil. We export natural gas. Why aren't we Amen. exporting electrons? And so I have always been a screw y'all. I want Texas to be alone. I started buying well, into where, that. Like, that's where Tenasca made billions is they built power plants like right on the edge of Texas, outside of Texas to sell into Texas. So, I mean, people have figured this one out. But I do think that there needs to be an opening between the other states. And I do actually like the idea of, of paying people for capacity. I like the capacity market idea um, and, and still make it uh, where, you know, where entrepreneurs have to, you know, they're, they're riding the commodity price. They have to hedge because if we, you know, we'll pay them to be around, but not so much where they don't have to work like you and me. Um, but I do think that there is an element there that makes a lot of sense. Now, what happened with Yuri is not necessarily just because we ran out, like things froze. Like we weren't, you know, our, you know, the, the generators and, and all the equipment froze. Like we've, we haven't seen that before. That's, I don't know if we overbuild, I need to really think through that. Like maybe it's just like one of these once in a hundred year storms and you can't necessarily throw the baby out with the bath water and way overbuild. To fix one, it, but. one of the coal, one of the coal plants, the coal was in the back and it was just frozen. They couldn't get the coal in because the heater that would melt the ice on the coal was natural gas fired and it wasn't getting its natural gas. So there's that. There's also the nuclear reactor that went down because a sensor wasn't there to measure the water. I have, I have since heard this is not a true story, but I love it. So I'll tell it anyway, like it's true. You know, they have this sensor that monitors the water temperature going back. And uh, supposedly one of the, en- and the sensor blew. So they had to shut down. And one of the engineers was going, we can't do that right now in winter storm. Yuri, tell you what I'll do. I'll just put my hand in the water. And when it gets hot, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but supposedly that's not true. I've talked to somebody on the the inside. All right, Mark, your energy czar of Texas, what are you going to do? Well, your comment on, you know, your conversation with Russell sparked a a bit of an audible at the line. I do think that kind of the the ultimate priority, the urgent priority should be whatever we need to do to normalize, standardize processes and and decision-making and build out of uh, more robustness and resilience in the grid. It, it's, it's a similar problem that we face everywhere with adding all of this demand that's coming with data centers and EVs, et cetera, and the ability to um, kind of normalize across the islands, if you will, would be kind of the ultimate goal. But grid, grid primacy, I think, is, is extremely important. The other one is we, we've got to take the as much as possible we need to take politicians who are not technically and scientifically quantified out of 
the evaluation piece of of energy technologies of power technologies. I don't know how you do that. I think there's there's plenty of ways to do that. There's nothing that will ever be purely unconflicted because everyone has a bit of a uh, you know there is no long term in politics, so everyone has a bit of a uh, a horse in the race, if if you will. But I think as I watch on a on a larger scale this whole global energy debate, the loudest voices are policy wonks and economists at the IEA, at the UN, in the US government, and in the EU. We need to bring, I think, the hardcore technical evaluation capability along with those that can assess really from a full cycle basis what is the best economic decision in terms of how to, you know, to to really enhance both the generation stack for all of the objectives from a safety standpoint, from a reliability standpoint, from climate. What's that? Climate standpoint. From an emission standpoint, all of those things. I just think so much of the technical capability has been left out Hmm. of the debate and conversation, ultimately the evaluation of what the right thing is to do. And I I don't know how you structure that, but I, I just think there's, there's plenty of horsepower out there that could make this process much better as it relates to, you know, year after year, as we're building out uh, the generation stack and adding capacity with increased to meet increased demand and then coordinating that with, with uh, ensuring a much more robust and resilient grid is incredibly important. For example, I hate to keep bringing up Doomberg again. They had a great piece last week on transformers. You even think about transformers. There's a, Pretty severe shortage of transformers. Huge. Well, and we look at what transformers do at night. They mostly rest and cool off. But if you're charging your EV at night, that transformer doesn't get to rest and cool off. And so there's a huge reduction in useful life of those transformers. Oh, and by the way, the new metals, um, don't remember the details, the new metals that are supposedly greener that are being proposed for new transformer construction are heavier which then creates an issue for the poles, the utility poles. So all of these things are connected, right? And so, you know, having a, a, a body of technical evaluation and voices within this very important, you know, go forward, how we're, how we're going to attack all this with the demand that's coming at us for electrifying everything, I think is incredibly important. So God help us. We're going to put an Australian in charge of Texas. <laughs> Christian, what's your go-to? All right. So I think as you've as everyone would have picked up, for a starters, everything that I'd put in place would be technology agnostic. Um, I think a form of the PCM or the performance uh, credit mechanism, I, I think a, a restricted form of that may add value. Um, there's actually a bill, SB7, that... that um, so they, they, they set aside a billion dollars for it, but that's really to do a study first. They're not, I haven't actually explained how they're going to, how this is going to work. So I think that'll be really interesting in the next couple of years to see what comes out of that because I think that could be an area. I would be definitely winterizing supply, making sure that it, because otherwise, otherwise winterizing supply on the gas side, you know, that's the, that's the bulk of, you know, that's still 40, 45% of, of the mix uh, at the moment. So I'd be making sure that supply is... Um, 
is there. Um, you'd have to be careful with that because you don't want to put blanket uh, winterize everything because you know there's more production that it doesn't need to be. So I think that'd be the the thing to be careful there. Um, I, I'm I I think we need to do something a lot more. That we talk a lot on the supply side. We don't talk nearly enough on the demand side of this. Um, and I'd be interested to see how we can incentivize uh, virtual power plants, the VPP model. Uh, the moment they get like a pilot going um, in ERCOT, but it's not not it's like pretty minimal what they're allowing. I think that's a great mechanism allowing more of that. So and sort of on the individual level, that would look like more like net metering. Uh, so if I've got salt rooftop solar and a battery, I get I can get you know capture uh, the benefits of of feed in feed in prices. Just like the self consumption laws in Europe are are yeah. already in place, we don't have those mechanisms. But yeah. the the girlfriend was over in England and she said you watch the meter yeah. right there and you know yeah. exactly yeah. how much you're spending. Yeah, and then so now like, Christian. Two questions on this is one, did you know I actually started a um, a retail electricity provider called Blackbeard that was going to steal from the rich and give to the poor? Now, that's not the real reason, but it was actually being able to virtually meter out if you're on the same platform. Now, I partnered with a guy that was former CEO of one of the large reps, and he totally him and I could not get along at all because I am tech guy that wants to save the world. He's a guy that wants to steal from everybody. And so it crumbled, but you're right on the precipice of the right idea of on the demand side. There's something there. I've believed it for 10 years. No yeah. one's done it. And so then, but then it, that's one thing on the, the the net metering basis. Then we need to to make a significant dent on the emergency situation. That's where I think the virtual power plants can come into it. Uh, and so that's essentially aggregating hundreds, thousands of of these um, uh, distributed systems together to provide power. Now that can be smart meters that that you know up your temperature or sorry, reduce your temperature at critical moments. It can be otherwise. You can take demand off or add additional supply uh, to the to the grid. And I think the reason I like this is it's like at the point um, piece that we're not having to try and build huge transmission lines, um, HV lines coming from West Texas to increase the solar or anything like that. It's, you know, um, at the point. So... Uh, that's where I'd be heading. Um, I do think the connection as a sort of a, uh, an addition, the connection to the uh, east-west grids is an interesting thing to consider. I don't know how you deal with that with FERC um, and like I don't know how you deal with that with the pricing considering that Texas exists on an island. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know how the – yeah, because, I mean – yeah, I don't know. I'll leave that to the market makers um, of yeah, how yeah. you actually do so, that. So absent a special session, are we waiting on another two years before the legislature reconvenes? Yeah. Is that is that essentially? Yeah, yeah so there, there was some, there's, it, it was all pretty minor. I mean, do you want me to run through? I can give the sort of wrap up of what went through and sure. what, what didn't. So stuff that failed, SB6 literally was going to give 10 to 20 billion on new pika plants. Uh, that got thrown out pretty early on. SB24, we talked about NIMBYs earlier. It was like an extensive permitting only for wind and solar. Apparently, there's billionaires with their ranches that didn't want to be able to see wind or solar facilities. So, like, they had, like, 
permitting and there was like distances from fence lines and all this stuff claimed on, you know, conservation grounds. But I think most people that looked at it just thought this is going to kill the wind and solar industry. So that got thrown out. Um, stuff on changes to the renewable energy credits got thrown out. Um, uh, specifics, more specifics on the dispatchable that was only gas got thrown out. I guess I'll throw in what what then did go through. Um, so HB fifteen hundred is it called the Sunset Review? Um, that's for the Public Utility Commission of Texas and ERCOT. Happens every you know twelve years is to give them a, they're essentially the license to operate type thing. Um, what happened though? All the bills that failed right at the last minute. Um, people are trying to throw in amendments to this fifteen hundred with all their like wish list type stuff, and so uh, that's where one of the performance credit billion dollars got added into. So that was a uh, that's where that fit in. Um, I mentioned the SB seven earlier on there that talks about that. So we're going to have to see where that where that you know that PCM so, comes so, into. So the bottom line on this, unless we have a disturbance of some sort. We don't see this stuff again for until two years, and they'll go duke it out in two years. That's Any sort of disturb, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I hate to do this to my colleagues on BDE. It's been a great show, but I have to tell you, y'all are all wrong. As energy czar of the state of Texas, the first thing I do is authorize one billion dollars, and I hire the leading scientists from Rice, Texas, A and M, to create the technology to harness the sexual tension between Mark Meyer and Kurt Coburn every week on BDE, because oh that God. would solve Shit. the world's energy crisis, climate change all in one swoop. We're so far away and it's still, you can't stop it. I feel it through my headset right now. So you've connected the Texas grid to, to, to the East to coast. Nantucket. We've done it. We've done it. Just I don't know if that. I'm the anode or the cathode in this situation, but. Which is superior? Because I'm the Exxon guy. You're the Shell guy. Nice. Oh, shit. Christian, you're totally cool to come join us. Absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. This was great. Pleasure. And the girlfriend uh, will be pleased with better English. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. A absolutely. We have an accent on the on BDE. So Texas was our our country of, of the week? Our European country of the week was Te Texas. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Very we're good. The, we yeah. deep dive we're Texas. We're about to be Europe because we're going to invade Russia. <laughs> we've got a we've got a fan. Digital Wildcatters. So I, did ask, I did ask the Mrs. on the request of Mark about what's her finger of the week. And she is um, as you know, she's Holly O. Coburn at, on Twitter or whatever. What's her Holly Ox. moniker? Holly Ox Coburn. And she's pretty much only political. She says, telling me not to be politically critical is like telling Tiger Woods to choose celibacy. So she, <laughs> she, she's out on um, she gave me something really good, but I was like, you know what? Not on this show. There we go. We're a family show here on. We're hey, family. Hey, Digital Wildcatters. She's family, but she is critical. Exactly. Hey, Digital Wildcatters, if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with folks, like it, give us some comments on it, and we'll see you next week.